Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. My next guest has an incredible life story, one that is hard to imagine. Tara Westover was raised as the youngest of seven children in the mountains of Idaho by survivalist parents. During the first 17 years of her life, she never set foot in a classroom. But with some encouragement from her brother, she applied to college, was accepted, and began a journey that would challenge the only belief system she'd ever known. And it would forever change her. Eventually, Westover earned a PhD from Cambridge and began writing about her life not only to help her own healing process, but also in hopes that her experience might resonate with others facing similar realities. And did it resonate? Her memoir, Educated, spent 135 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and garnered notable praise across the globe. Last year, I had the chance to sit down with Tara to discuss her book and her life and how she's been impacted by the popularity of her story. I'm Jenna Bush-Hager, and welcome to Read with Jenna. All right, so first, will you just tell me, start off telling me what your childhood was like, like some of the things that people may find unusual? Probably... People would find a lot of things a little bit unusual. I, I, so I grew up in a family in the mountains of Idaho. I was the youngest of seven children. My dad just didn't believe in a lot of the things that most people would take for granted. So we weren't allowed to go to school because he was a little bit paranoid about the government. And he didn't believe in what he called the medical establishment. So we didn't go to the doctor, no nurses, no vaccinations, nothing like that. Everything was treated at home by my mother, who was a, an herbalist. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't, we were born at home. I didn't have a birth certificate till I was nine. We lived in a pretty unusual, kind of isolated way in, you know, rural Idaho. So it, it was a bit of a different, a bit of a different upbringing. Mm-hmm. And now you live in two of the biggest cities in the world. You've gone to two of the most prestigious colleges or universities in the world. You've published a book that sat on the New York Times bestseller list for a really, really long time. What is that? Like, could you ever have even imagined the life that you're living then? (laughs) No, no. Solidly no. You know, I mean, my dad owned a junkyard, and I remember when I was a kid, I would just be working in my dad's junkyard. And uh, I never thought I would go to college. You know, my dad was against college, so I I wouldn't have thought I was going to go to college anyway. And then, uh, yeah, now to be, I live in New York. Um, I've had a lot of amazing opportunities. I didn't have health insurance until yeah. I was 30 because I just couldn't afford it and um, almost dropped out of school because I had a dental problem come up and I needed $1,600 I didn't have. And that was just going to be the end of my college life, except I got a Pell Grant. So everything in my whole life used to be just determined by money or the absence of money or this kind of belief system that I'd been raised in. And, uh, you know, because of my education, because so many people have kindly read and bought the book. I have a totally different life now. You know, I have health insurance. I can write. I have that kind of stability. So I just feel really, yeah, really grateful that things can change so much. Mm-hmm. 
when you were younger, you your your parents were survivalist. You talked about growing up. I remember, I mean, I read your book when it first came out, so four years ago. And I like remember a scene vividly of you stand, you know, hurting your arm. And there was such fear around it and not feeling protected. And I feel like in some families, you know, there's fear and shame and it's kind of all wrapped up with love. Is that something you get over? <laughs> uh, just a little question. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, I know, sorry, really deep. Yeah, I mean, that's something I am I think a lot about now because Educated was a book that I wrote. You know, I, I made a difficult decision with my own family where I'm, I'm estranged from some members of my family because I could not make those relationships healthy by my own standards. And so I had to make a decision to put a a boundary in place there. And um, that was a really difficult decision for me. And when I wrote Educated, it was kind of in that moment of of doubt. This is something I need to do. I'm not sure I'm allowed to do it or I feel really bad about it. I, I love these people. I really love them. I miss them. Can you love someone and still choose to say goodbye to them? And and so I, I wrote the book in this place where I was really of two minds. And, and that's, I stand by that. You know, I, I don't want to be in that position forever emotionally, but I think a lot of people are in that position. And so it it captures that kind of conflict that you feel within yourself. And now I'm, I'm kind of thinking about exactly what you're talking about, which is not, not just the decision itself, but once you've made that decision, once you've tried to carve out a healthier space, how do you think about confronting that emotional inheritance and putting yourself back together again? And I think it is possible. Mm -hmm. It's a possible thing, but it's not something that happens by itself. And the thing about people, human beings. I think a lot of times when you grow up in a difficult family, the real tragedy isn't, isn't so much the childhood as, as, as adulthood, mm. counterintuitively. It's, mm-hmm. it's that we as human beings tend to recreate the world as we first experience it. And so we, we get certain beliefs that we learn in our families about the way the world is, the way men are, the way women are, the way people are. And then we go out into the world and we find people like that. You know, We draw them to us and we, we end up kind of recreating the world that we're trying to get away from over and over again. And so I think to stop doing that, you need, it takes a kind of conscious intervention to to start having a different kind of faith, not necessarily religious faith, but just faith that a different world is possible other than the one that you've seen, that there can be a whole different life or different ways of interacting with people than you've witnessed. So you decided at some point that you wanted an education. Your, your brother made that choice and you realized there was a different possibility. Do you remember the first moment when you thought, like, I want something different? I wanted to a different life from pretty young. You know, I, I didn't know what that would look like, but my whole teenage years, I just I don't know. I wasn't happy. And I was in this kind of eternal power struggle with my dad. And I wanted to go to school and he wouldn't let me. And uh, But I didn't know what college was. I didn't even know what education was because I'd never set foot in a classroom. And the, the, the weird part of the story, I mean, there's a lot of weird parts, <laughs> but one of the weird parts of the story is I went to college because I wanted to sing. Mm. You know, I was really loved music and I loved singing and I wanted to be trained. And my older brother, was very clever. He said to me, oh, you go to college to sing. And that's where you should go. And so I did this, you know, I kind of, I tried to teach myself algebra. I took the ACT. I did all these things to get into college, not because I wanted an education, because I, I liked music, you know, mm-hmm. 
And so it was, for me, that was the entryway. That was the reason. And once I got there, I had no idea what college was or university or a degree. I mean, I stayed because I I liked music. And once I was there, I was taking history classes and I was taking psych classes and I was taking politics. And I was suddenly, I realized, oh, the world's big. Yeah. And there's a lot in it that I like. And I still like music, but I learned there's a lot of things here, you know, and and I can do other things. And so it, it was, but it was the first step was was no, not some grand idea of education is important. I had no idea of that. Nobody ever told me that. Yeah. But it was just music. And what was it like to step inside the walls of an institution? Like when you've been told that you, you know, that, that you should fear it. <laughs> um, you've been told that you can't get receive it. What, were you nervous? Like there must have been like some major courage that went into that. I was that. terrified. And I was also pretty weird. Like, honestly, <laughs> you know, I hadn't gone to school. I didn't dress like the other kids. Luckily, I was going to Brigham Young University. So I was going to a Mormon university. And my family, they're not mainstream Mormon. They're much more extreme than that. But they were Mormon. So the mm-hmm. school, rec- I recognized the religious situation. And that made me feel a little better about it. But it was just scary. I'd never taken a test except the ACT, which is not a good test to start with. Like if you're going to start with one. <laughs> Don't start with that one. Um, so it was It was just, I didn't fit in very well, you know? And I, I raised my hand one of my first classes and asked what the Holocaust was. Mm-hmm. I had not heard of it and uh, never heard of the civil rights movement. You know, my entire knowledge of the world was being filled in in this incredibly short span of time. And there were some definite, you know, growth pains with that and uh, trying to learn social skills and <laughs> How do you take a test? And just all of it, you know, it was really the first two years were pretty intense. Yeah. I mean, you had to make up for years of, of nothing. I was trying. Yeah. W- but when you, so you learned about these major world events that you hadn't learned about that many people learn about in elementary school. But what did you learn about yourself during that time? Well, I, I was learning a I think I was learning that there were different ways to see the world. Uh, and I think this is true for everybody, but it was really true for me because I grew up in a family that was very, a little bit more closed off because we didn't go to school. We didn't, we didn't get a lot of outside ideas. We had my father's version of history, really, and politics and religion, and we didn't get a lot of other ideas. And I think that's true for everybody, more or less. Mm-hmm. Like our, our families kind of make our world mm-hmm. for us in a real way and part of what it means to grow up is learning how to define yourself both in connection with that, but also in distinction to that. So it's a common experience, but for me, it was a little concentrated because we didn't go to school and realizing I can disagree with my dad, which I don't think it occurred to me really before those moments, realizing I can have a different view of the civil rights movement than my dad. I can have a different view of, of politics than my dad. I can, I can think differently about things. You know, I grew up in a family where Feminism was kind of a cuss word. <laughs> you weren't supposed to say it. You might turn into one, <laughs> and um, which turns out to be true, actually. Uh, if you do say it out loud, you do turn. Into <laughs> You're one. like, wait, this sounds right. It <laughs> sounds right. Uh, so I didn't encounter feminism, you know, till Cambridge. Uh, I remember sitting across and having coffee with these two women. I'd never had coffee before because they're Mormon, and they were talking about, and they were very obviously feminists. And I was like, it's like looking at you know, people behind going, this is like, you know. <laughs> Uh, it turns out Cambridge has a lot of them, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I was discovering all these things for the first time and then thinking, you know, this doesn't actually seem that crazy. I always, yeah. And realizing I can think differently and that would start with things like history and philosophy, but it would quickly 
grow and, and come to have personal implications because there were things in my family culture that I'd always thought were normal that as I got older and, and got more of a habit and a muscle of having my own mind, mm. I started to think, and this actually is not okay. This cannot remain this way. You were told that your place was in the home. Maybe you would be a midwife, um, but you would never leave, you know, and you were certainly deferential to any of the, your brothers or your father. Does that, like, do you still hear that voice? I mean, it changes. You're, I think everybody's always trying to, to sort out, you know, what are the beliefs that I was given when I was so young, I didn't even have a mind, yeah. you know, so they, they don't even feel like beliefs. They just feel true or they just feel like me. And I have a lot of those for sure, but, but they've changed over time. And I think I've got a little better at, at hearing that mm -hmm. and hearing the, the not me part of it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think we disagreed about feminism, certainly, but also about, um, you know, my family, when you have a closed situation like that, a lot of families, I think, have dysfunction or, or problems in them. But, and we certainly did in my family. And because it was a closed environment, it's very hard to get help or get perspective mm -hmm. on those things. And so I think that was that was the way that the story would 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 change pretty dramatically. As I got more independent minded in other things, mm -hmm. I started really questioning, you know, I had an older brother who was pretty violent, had been for a long time. And and so when I titled the book Education or Educated, it's because it's not just that education is this one thing that you get a better job and you can like live in a nicer neighborhood. Ideally, it should change all of you, mm -hmm. your ideas about about everything, mm -hmm. your relationships. How do you treat people? Uh, what is okay? What's not okay? And so I titled the book that because I, I would hope that an education would have all of those aspects in it because it certainly did for me. It changed almost every aspect of my life. Mm -hmm. When you first left, you wouldn't really talk about what your childhood was like. It was sort of a secret that you kept really close. So to write it down, even for yourself, must have felt like the bravest thing possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I, you know, some families, it's okay to talk about the family. Yeah. And I have friends who, you know, it's okay to complain about their mom or their dad. And I didn't grow up in one of those families. I grew up in a family where it was silence that was really expected and criticism was not okay. And so for me, even when I was in college or graduate school and I was trying to go to therapy, I couldn't even go to therapy. I just couldn't, I couldn't talk about that. I just couldn't. And I think what I did find I could do is I could write about it. Mm. I could do that. And once I'd written about it, I could find a way to talk about it. But it was incredibly hard for me to describe it. And even my best friends in graduate school uh, didn't know, you know, a lot of it. They didn't know I hadn't gone to school. I got really good at answering those questions in a way where I wasn't lying. People would say, what school did you go to? And I would say, the school in my town mm. had, you know, and I just would, I wouldn't say I went there, but I would heavily imply it. And mm -hmm. I, I had a lot of friends when the book was published, actually good friends that were a little annoyed at me because like, I didn't know any of this about you because I really tried to keep it a well, secret. And was that also like there was shame there? Were you embarrassed? I was, yeah. I think especially, you know, I ended up becoming estranged from some of my members of my family and it was about my brother. I had this older brother who was violent and, um, 
yeah, once that happened, I think it's really easy to feel like you're the only person that ha- that's in this kind of situation, the kind of situation where you love someone, but that love ends up hurting you. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things that surprised me about publishing the book was how many people I heard from. You know, I received thousands of letters from all, like a lot of different kinds of people, you know, uh, students and dentists and girls who were growing up a little bit like I was maybe kept out of school, but a lot of people who weren't, you know, who are coming from really different environments and realizing there are a lot of people out there walking around with this enormous sense of guilt because they can't make a relationship work. And if it's family, we feel like we have to make it work. Yeah. Or there's something wrong with us. And um, I had to realize, you know, there is some level of dysfunction here. And I, I can't control whether people change. Like you can love somebody, but loving them doesn't give you control over them or power over what they do. And as I've got older, I've come to think that maybe the best way to respect love is to respect its limits. Mm to respect that fact that loving someone doesn't give you power over them because love isn't about power and mm-hmm. that you can love someone and say goodbye to them because you can just decide you're going to love them whether they change. But whether they change, for me, I decided I, I don't need them to change for me to love them, but I do need them to change if I'm going to have them in my life. And that hasn't happened. No, I haven't seen signs of that happening. I'm always watching for signs that that's going to happen, you know, that the family culture shifted away from kind of enabling but um i watch for those signs but i don't wait for them Mm. anymore because i think i just don't have control over that and i want to be able to live a full life either way tara talks about her family's response to the memoir and learning to feel good enough for good things more coming up on this episode of read with jenna Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NexGuard Plus chews. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So, to publish this book, I mean, you could never, nobody could ever have predicted how huge it would become. President Obama put it on his list, which is like always kind of a... That was exciting. Yeah, awesome. And it sold and sold and sold. Like you, during those, even now, you walk through airports and you see people reading it. What was the response from your family? You know, I knew it was going to be, it was always going to be a difficult book uh, to write and to publish. And I knew it was going to be uncomfortable for them because it is a story about ideological extremism and... um, abuse and gaslighting you know it's a lot i think it's a story about a family that has a lot of good people in it and a lot of people with good intentions but um kind of inability to confront some of these darker things and i had to make a decision about whether you know i had to weigh the discomfort for myself and also for them against what what i hoped the story could do for other people in that kind of situation and also my own need to write it and so i 
when I wrote it, I tried to be as, as thoughtful as I could, and I, I used synonyms, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I tried to really just be conscious and think, like, if I'm going to put this into it, I actually need it, you know. Um, but of course, I never knew that it was going to blow up like no. this. Uh, that was, you, you never, publishing is kind of a hard industry. <laughs> like, everyone tells you, like, no one's going to read this. Like, why are you wasting your time on this? Two people are going to read it, and you're going to pay them to do it. And so I wasn't thinking it would, it would be, it would be a big thing, but I think memoir is a complicated genre. There's, there's no way around it. Any kind of writing, any kind of writing is, is complicated, I think. Yeah. But did you hear if they read it, if any of your family members read it, did you hear from them? I know some did and some didn't. Um, but I don't know if I could recreate for you an exact list of who did or didn't. And no, like there were no major complaints. (laughs) I mean, it's a book about estrangement. So, um, you know, I knew we were going to, we're not going to agree. And a lot of the book, one of the things I was trying to actively capture was that experience of knowing that something has happened and having everyone around you tell you that it was completely the opposite. Not everyone, but some people, you know, people that, that matter. And so I, I tried in the book to be as upfront as I possibly could about here's my memory. Mm-hmm. Here are the people that share that memory. And here are the people that don't mm-hmm, share that memory mm-hmm. and have a different memory. Mm-hmm. So I can't say that we agree on the I think that the content of the book is about not agreeing. Uh, mm. And so I can't say that we agreed on everything, but I, I did do my best to highlight for people, you know, here's what I have and here's the journal entries that I wrote and here's my experience of it. And, and here, here's where the disagreement is. Cause I think that disagreement is incredibly important for people trying to get out of a dysfunctional family. That's the reality. People aren't going to, they don't know that it's a problem. That's often what the problem is, mm. actually. Mm-hmm. And and is there still, like, do you still grieve those losses? Do you still? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm always, mm-hmm. I have good memories from my childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? and that's, in, that's apparent too, right? I there's, do. I, there's nuance there. There was love. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I had this relationship with my brother that I've mentioned that was, there was a lot of violence between me and my brother. But 95% of the time, he was wonderful. In fact, he was the most protective, loving person in my life when I was 16. And I remember once I watched a movie at my grandmother's house that was depicting an abusive relationship. And it was the way TV often does. They were just like drunk all the time, <laughs> throwing things, you know. And I remember as I was driving home, I had this thought. I was 16 and I thought to myself, I wonder if my relationship with Sean is abusive. And I thought, no, it's not. Because that really, that's only a very small percentage of the time. So it must be that it's okay. And one of the things I wanted to capture in the book is to redefine, like, the fact that it's good 95% of the time doesn't negate that 5%. And the 5% doesn't negate the 95 Like, they're both true, mm. but it doesn't make it okay. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times abusive relationships look like that 95-5. A lot of the time they do. And um, so I, I think that you can miss someone very much and still decide, this isn't good for me. And I have to let it go, even if I'm going to be sad about it. Mm-hmm. Mental health it was also a huge theme in this, in your life. <laughs> and, you know, living with somebody that's suffering. And I wonder what you heard from people who read after. Did you hear a lot of people say, like, thank you for showing um, what it's like to live with somebody that struggles? Yeah, I think I would say a lot of the letters that I got from people are are some version of that. Someone in their life that they've been trying sometimes for decades to figure out 
what to do about it. And sometimes they're writing to me about people who, you know, parents who've been dead for 20 years mm-hmm. and they're still carrying around this, this burden. And, uh, and sometimes I think they're, they're younger and they're just starting to try to understand how growing up in a family like that has impacted the way they see themselves. So I was at an event once and a, a girl came up to me uh, and she handed me a letter that I read later in the hotel. And I, I read the letter and she'd grown up in foster care. She was still in foster care. And she'd written, she thanked me for the book and she said to help me make some important decisions about my education. And then she said this thing was really powerful for me where she said, but I still think that I'm not good enough for good things. Oh, my heart just opened because I, I remember that so well. I remember that feeling, like how deeply those ideas can get in, like how deeply buried they get. So I, I know I hear from people at a lot of different stages of, of grief, really, of grieving things that happened recently, grieving things that are still happening, grieving things that happened 20 years ago that they've never, they've never really let themselves experience the cost of those things. They've either blocked it or repressed it. And I, I think sometimes when we don't take the time to grieve something when it happens or shortly after it happens, the costs are pretty enormous, actually. You know, if you don't take the time to really feel what's happening, mm. I think the expense that you pay over the long, in terms of the cost of your other relationships, your ability to be open with people, your ability to be kind with your own kids or your own friends, it, you, you pay for that, I think. And, and so one thing I've been really, um, happy to see when people write me is to realize for some people reading another story, even if it's totally different from theirs, is a way to grieve mm-hmm. what they lost. That, that belief, I still think I'm not good enough for good things to grieve that. And I think in grieving it, let it go a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're good enough for good things? <laughs> I'm getting much better. You know, uh, I would say it's a, I have that. I have that, you know, broken mirror a little bit where the reflection that I got from my early life wasn't always positive, you know, my self-image. And that has been a, a project for me. It's, um, it's been a big project, but I would say it's going well, the project, I think. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's getting much better. Maybe that's, I mean, that's why what she wrote affected me so much. Yeah. I really identified with it. What are you working on now? You're writing. That's what I'm working on is that <laughs> whole like emotional inheritance, you know, of how do you how do you do that work to confront what you've lost and incorporate it into your life and and move forward from it? You know, how do you confront and reconcile yourself to that emotional inheritance and really make peace with yourself? You know, uh, there are things that have been lost and and maybe not maybe make peace with with your own life and your own history. When you think about that little girl that grew up in the mountains of Idaho, could she ever have even imagined that this is what her life would look like? No, (laughs) no, not remotely. Um, I mean, I I don't think I knew New York was a real place, you know, uh, or London. I remember I read the Harry Potter books when I was a teenager and I thought London was made up as much as Hogwarts. You know, I just thought it was a made up place. And then I, I lived there for a while after graduate school. And it's very weird to be living in a place that it's like living in Fantasia or something, you know, <laughs> for me. I, I didn't know these were real places. They could have been in rural Idaho reading stories. Very difficult to know what's, what's the made up part and <laughs> what's the real part. So no, it was, it would have been unimaginable. Mm-hmm. 
Coming up, Westover shares what forced her to leave her family, the only life she'd ever known, how she's learning to break habits in her relationships, and what she's working on now when we return. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NexGuard Plus chews. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One of the parts of the book that I loved was you were standing in your bathroom in your parents' house and you looked in the mirror and you thought like, okay, I I have to make a choice here. I'm going to either continue to be this girl that is expected of me to live here forever, stay this person. Or, and you wrote, you could call, you or change. And you wrote, you could call this selfhood many things. Transformation, metamorphosis, falsity, betrayal, and I call it an education. It's like, what does that word mean to you? I mean, I I changed as a person, and I was that moment that you're talking about. I I confronted my parents about my brother. My brother had made some pretty serious threats. It was a pretty dramatic scene that whole night, and um, and I was in the bathroom, which I. It was a scene that had played so many times in my life. Something had happened with me and my brother, and I would lock myself in the bathroom. And I was looking in the mirror, and it was weird that I was a graduate student at Cambridge. I was 22, 23 years old. And for a moment, I was, you know, 14, 15 again, and I was, nothing had changed. Uh, and looking in the mirror and realizing, actually, everything has changed, and I don't have to be here. You know, if, if, I, if I can't make this place safe, I can just leave. And... When I was 15, I couldn't. Yeah. There was nowhere to go. I couldn't go to school. I didn't have a car. I didn't have money. And, and realizing the only thing holding here, me here is me. That's the only thing. And, and walking out of the room and, and leaving effectively just this is one of the last times I went back and just realizing I, I don't have to be here. That's a, a choice I can make. Yeah. And there's something about your actual education, which you'd had, but also the education inside yourself that empowered you to close that door. Well, the kind of education you get where you go out in the world and you meet different people and you realize there are different kinds of relationships. You know, I don't, my friends in Cambridge, my friends at BYU, I don't have this with them. I only have this here. You know, I only, I only lock my bedroom door at night and sleep like half awake to hear if someone's coming here. I only do that here. And realizing there's other ways to live. You know, mm-hmm. there's other people out there. There's other kinds of relationships. I didn't know that when I was 15. I think I hoped it, mm-hmm. but I didn't know it. And by the time I was 22, 
yes, I'd had an education. I'd met a feminist. You know, <laughs> I'd changed. But I also had friendships that were functional mm. and were where the love was unalloyed with these other more complicated things like mental illness or other problems and just realizing there's a choice that I can make here. I can, I can stay and I can embed myself further in this or I can find out what else is possible, what other kinds of lives and relationships and friends, people out there that are different than they are here. And that was education for me and not just in the classroom, but people sitting next to you when you realize, huh, not everybody is the same as I grew up. You mentioned something earlier about how, how some habits repeat themselves. And have you been able to kind of break the cycle of what sometimes love look like in your life now? That's another thing that I would say has been a process. Um, I've found I had a tendency, I think, to... Um, Re- reintroduce those elements into my life over and over again. Even maybe I would, maybe I would pick people who had those tendencies a little bit, but maybe not. Even if I, you know, I was with my, my ex Drew for eight years and we're still very close and I, I love him. But when I think about our relationship, I can see how I was making this dynamic. I was making that happen. And so I realized that when I was, I think writing educated, actually, I remember closing that, you know, file when I'd written it and I closed the file and I thought, well, that's the end of the book. And now I, I really need to get my life sorted out because I am still doing this. Like there are real ways that I'm still there, even though I'm in London. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would say it is a process. And one of the things that Educated allowed me to do was take some time with the pandemic and do therapy mm-hmm. and read a lot of books. And I'm with someone now, we've been together about a year, and I don't see that pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually feel like it was something I had to really learn how to do is is allow myself to be with someone who likes me. Uh, and I'm, I'm not constantly reintroducing those elements back into the relationship. And so uh, I do think I was recreating that, but I don't say that to be like, oh, it was Drew. It wasn't Drew. I was doing it also. It was a big me. It was a big part of me, but it was something I had to really consciously think about in the kind of work I was doing on changing those patterns. Why is it I keep doing this? And I, you know, I'm, I'm 35. I can do this when I'm 35. I don't want to do this when I'm 45 Mm -hmm. or 55 or 65. Like there has to be an end to it. Yeah. So is your next book, like what's the genre? Is it self-help? It's going to, I mean, I kind of swore I wasn't going to write a memoir, but I, I'm, it's going to be a memoir because what I find with that topic is there's a lot of fantastic writing by researchers and there's some fantastic writing by clinicians. Yeah. But when I look at what there isn't, I see that gap. It's people relating their own experiences who are not doing in a page or paragraph to go in their therapist book, but like actually can write about their lives. And so I think that there's just a bit of a gap there. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a harder kind of writing in a way, Mm -hmm. like writing about, uh, yeah, it's it's trickier, but I'm confident now it's going to work. If you'd asked me three or four months ago, I would have, I don't know if it's going to work. Um, but now I'm like, no, this is going like, to work. Good. This is going to work. Yeah. Like, it's a book-like thing. This, there's a book in here. But yeah. the, now I can see it. I'm like, this is going to work. What an incredibly eye-opening memoir and journey. I really learned so much talking to Tara. I hope you did too. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please give Read with Jenna a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Make sure to tell your friends about us, and new episodes drop every Thursday. The fun doesn't stop here. Want to join our Read with Jenna community of book lovers? Head to today.com slash readwithjenna to find our monthly book list and to sign up for our newsletter. You can also find us on Instagram at readwithjenna. This episode of Read with Jenna is produced by Brittany Howard, Carrie Frazier, and Abigail Russ. Our associate audio engineer is Juliana Masterilli. Our audio engineer is Katherine Anderson. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Missy Dunlap-Parsons is our executive producer. And Libby Least is the executive vice president of Today and Lifestyle. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.